Hello, and welcome to the online gathering for worship from Markham Baptist Church in Markham, Ontario, Canada. Now I'm found. 
If you are absolutely convinced that religion and politics do not mix, or that they ought to be avoided at all costs in polite company, then I must advise you to turn off this YouTube presentation. It is a political decision by a pagan king that is interpreted by the biblical writer as part of the work and witness of God. Ezra, in writing about this incident in the life of God's people, says this, The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. That's Ezra 1.1. Let me try and set the scene for you. The history of Israel as an independent nation in the ancient world is something of a mixture of success and failure. You'll remember that the first king was Saul, who was rejected in favor of David. And David was succeeded by his son Solomon. And with the death of Solomon, the fabric of the nation began to unravel. The one kingdom became two. It was divided, the northern kingdom of Israel and the smaller of the two, the southern kingdom of Judah, which included the city of Jerusalem. For our purposes, we will fast forward over a few centuries and a litany of kings in both the north and the south who failed to follow the ways of God and who would not listen to a succession of prophets who told them that a disaster was on its way because they were no longer loyal to the Torah or the laws of God. They prostituted themselves by insisting on worshiping gods of wood and metal that belonged to the nations at their borders or among the communities of pagans that still lived within Israel and Judah. The chronology that interests us looks like this. And remember, when we're in BC years, we're, we're, it looks like we're counting backwards because we go from the higher numbers to the lower numbers. So 722 to 721 BC, that the, the Assyrian Empire conquers Israel, the northern kingdom. And much of the population of the northern kingdom is exiled to other parts of the empire. That's the Assyrian Empire. Now, you fast forward about 140 years, 130 some odd, 140 years, 587 to 586 BC, not the Assyrians, but the Babylonian Empire conquers Judah, the southern kingdom, and most of the surviving population of Judah, they are taken to Babylon as exiles. We go forward a little bit more. 539 BC, Cyrus the Great, king of the Persian Empire, captures Babylon and he conquers the Babylonian Empire. And then one year later, 538 BC, Cyrus issues an edict for Jews to return to Judah. Now, there are two sources of information about what happened in 539, 538 BC. The Bible, of course. And what archaeologists call the Cyrus Cylinder. 
The Cyrus cylinder is an ancient clay cylinder upon which was written a declaration by Cyrus giving details of some of the orders that he wanted carried out after his defeat of the Babylonians. I'm just guessing, but I assume the cylinder to be one of the great finds of 19th century archaeology. It was discovered in 1879 in the ruins of Babylon in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. It was discovered on an expedition sponsored by the British Museum in London, England. And that cylinder is still in possession of the British Museum. What the cylinder tells us is that even kings in the ancient world differed in respect to their policies, just as we find in the political parties of modern democracies. The Babylonians, as they did in Judah and Jerusalem, believed that the, the way to control a defeated enemy was to remove many of the citizens from their native soil, and in particular to symbolize their victory over the Jews, for instance, by stripping the temple of its furnishings and displaying those things in the temples of Babylon as symbols of their victory, tokens of their victory. Now here I'm engaging in some rampant speculation, but we do know that the Babylonians loved to strip the idols from the temples of defeated enemies. And so in my mind's eye, I can see some victorious general telling one of his underlings to round up all the idols from Solomon's temple, and then ten minutes later, listening with disbelief as the junior officer tells them, that there wasn't an idol to be found, because of course there wasn't. There were no idols in the temple of the Jehovah God. In the end, then, anything that was worth anything in the temple was gathered up. Some of it was dismantled. It was piled on the next freight train bound for Babylon. Now, Cyrus, the Persian, he thought that the Babylonians were, at very least, behind the times. Not nearly as enlightened as the Persian nation. Cyrus believed, as some of us will remember, as Mary Poppins believed, that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And so when Cyrus took over, he released all of those who'd been exiled to Babylon and not only gave permission, but encouraged them to go back, encouraged the exiles to return to their homeland, and not only that, but to reestablish the worship of their God. Now here, friends, we come to a fork in the road of faith. You see, it's not that the Bible wants us to ignore the fact that other nations benefited from this edict of Cyrus, because we did, they did, we know that from the Cyrus Cylinder. Rather, the Bible says, this is how God's people understand the unfolding of history. God had made a promise, and God keeps those promises. And God will use even a pagan 
to fulfill his word and accomplish his will. This detail ought to make us sit up and take notice. I believe God, through his word, is giving us some clues as to what he's up to. Not only in this specific story, this story from ancient history, but also in our story. Your story, my story, the story that is ours together here at Markham Baptist Church. Let's look at a few more details from our text in Ezra 1. We've got Cyrus the pagan who is sending God's people back to their home in Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 1 verse 6, the neighbors of those who were preparing for the trip gave them gifts for the journey and for rebuilding their homes. There is also verses 7 and 8 in which we are told that Cyrus himself made sure that the articles which had been taken from the temple when Judah had been defeated, that those articles were collected in order to be returned with the new governor, Sheshbazar, of what was to be Judah, now the Persian province. Now, are there some reminders here? Friends, if we were together in the sanctuary at Markham Baptist, I could pause to wait for some answers to this question. And perhaps if your thinking is going in the same direction as mine, you could send me an email and let me know. But I believe what we're meant, I believe we are meant to think of the exodus from Egypt. Cyrus reminds us of Pharaoh. Those fleeing from Egypt received gifts from their neighbors. Exodus 12 verse 36 says, And so they plundered the Egyptians. Provision is made for worship in the restored temple, just as the raw material was collected in the wilderness for worship in the tabernacle. All of this, I think, says to us that the return from exile the return from Babylon, is a new exodus. In other words, the God whom we worship is the God who is in the business of taking people from slavery to freedom. And that God will work out his promise in the midst of the strangest and most challenging of circumstances. Let me offer one more text that I believe underscores this idea of the promise-keeping God. Many of you will remember the gospel story of the transfiguration. It was our first reading this morning. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to a mountain location where Jesus' appearance changes, and Moses and Elijah suddenly appear and speak with him. In Luke's telling of the story, he says this, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's Luke 9, verse 31. Now, that's a perfectly good translation, except for one thing. The word that is translated departure is the same Greek word that in other places is used to speak of the exodus. Jesus has a conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration 
He has a conversation with two of the greatest ancient servants of God, Moses and Elijah, and they talk about the exodus that is going to happen at Jerusalem. In other words, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus can be understood as the action of the God who promises freedom from slavery and who keeps those promises. Friends, it would take all the time we had today and more to run through the various experiences, both negative and positive, that have been part of our lives since mid-March, when the COVID-19 state of emergency was declared in Ontario. It would be foolish, preposterous, it would be the height of pastoral malpractice to tell you that I knew what God was up to in this time of illness, loneliness, unemployment, and an endless litany of canceled spring and summer plans. Yet the Bible and the lives of many faithful Christians continue to witness to this reality. That God in ancient Egypt... That God in Babylon, that God at the cross and empty tomb, that God today promises to lead his people from every place of bondage to the freedom of knowing his grace and his love. Amen. In the morning when we rise, and in the night when we lay down, and in all the moments in between, God is there. Let us pray. O Lord, you are there. In the night while we sleep, or toss and turn in anxiety, even then, O Lord, you are there. You are waiting for us to turn to you. You are waiting for us to look to you. 
You are waiting for us to make time for you, to pay attention to you, to take time to attend to our relationship with you. Far too often, even in these pandemic days, we are too busy. Yet, O oh God, you call to us to be still. We confess that even now this is difficult for us. We prefer to be active. We prefer to be busy. We prefer to be surrounded by activity and noise. Silence unsettled us. Solitudes intimidate us. Reflection rattles us. So we seek diversions and welcome distractions. We fill our schedules to overflowing, and the busier we get, the more our spiritual hunger grows. We feel it, an ache, an emptiness. Grant us, O oh God, the strength of will to feed our hunger, to step away. Shield us from the temptation to put off our prayers and, and postpone our time for reflection. Teach us how to be still and know you. O oh Lord, show yourself to those who need you in our circles of family and friends. We pray for the sick. Show us how to provide good care for them in whatever ways we can. Bless their doctors and nurses and caregivers with skill and compassion. Bless their families and loved ones with patience and the strength to give support. And as bodies heal, let faith grow and relationships with others become deeper. We pray your peace for all who mourn, O Lord. Send your spirit to lead them through the valley of the shadow. Fill their minds with positive memories and their hearts with comfort and resurrection hope. Answer the cries of the desperate and the discouraged, the frantic and the frightened, the anxious and the alone. Protect the poor and weak from the rich and powerful. Continue to guide and sustain those who are committed to showing the world a better way, your way. We pray for our families and friends and the neighborhoods in which we live out our daily lives. Lord Jesus, lover of children, bless our families and help us to lead our children to you. We name in our hearts all those we love who have a special need today. Open our hearts, Lord. Help us to listen fully to others. Whether they are friends, enemies, Help us to listen to the words of people we may never meet, the stories of people who need our help. O oh God, we rejoice and give thanks for your offer of love and friendship, your presence with us, your sacrifice for us. We thank you for answers to many prayers. We thank you for friends who are faithful for people we can call on and count on when we are stretched beyond our limits. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins and the new life we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the sense of purpose and worth we derive from our call to follow Jesus and to continue his work in the world. Fan the flame of your spirit within us, 
that we may bring your love to those in need in this community. Continue your work in our lives, we pray, that your flame may blaze ever more brightly within us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God, Creator, Savior, and Spirit, be among and remain with you this day and always. Amen.